Some of you will have seen the TV series Lost, which was on our TVs a couple of years ago now. I think I managed to stick with it for about a series and a half, but my little brain struggled to keep up with the complexities of the storyline. The interesting thing about that show was the vastness of the cast. If you don't know anything about it, it commenced with a plane crash that left 71 people stranded on a tropical, deserted island. Now, 71 people is a big cast for any TV show, but the producers admitted this made it inordinately expensive to run. But here is their reasoning, and I quote, The reason given was that so they could have flexibility in story decisions. The idea was that uh, over the first series, various characters would vie for the main storyline. And the writers would interact with the audience at home to see which storylines gripped the the viewers and which characters won their hearts. And over the first series, those characters perceived as lackluster and slightly shallow were just written off the script and killed off. And those that the viewers loved and liked, they developed their stories accordingly. Character and storyline flexibility. Now, when we read John's Gospel, we are introduced, even tonight, to a wide array of characters. But unlike Lost, there is not this flexibility in storyline or lead character. John unashamedly wants you to focus on one person. Now, come with me to chapter 20 and verse 30. We looked at this briefly last night. But the way John interacts with us as a reader is on this agenda. This is his purpose. Chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is not character flexibility. This is not an X factor where you can vote on which characters you keep in. This is John unashamedly saying, Jesus front and center. Without him, there is no story. He wants you to see Jesus that you may believe in him and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. And tonight, all we are going to do is uh, go through this sequence of days in John chapter 1. And as we meet these characters, these are going to be our friends, if you like, our acquaintances for the next year, if you put this on a Sky Plus series link. But these characters that we are introduced to, they, we notice they're not looking back at us directly. Their eyes are on something different, someone different. As we look at them, as we are introduced to them, they are there to introduce us to Jesus. Now, if you want tonight's sermon in a sentence, uh, here it is. There is life in a look at the Lamb. That is what we're going to see in all the characters. In all uh, the days we go, there is life in a look at this Lamb. Have a look at verse 19. Day one. But what is noticeable is that in light of what we've just said, Jesus is not yet center stage. you see what it says? This was John's 
testimony. Let's just clarify this. This is not John, the writer of the gospel. This is John the Baptist. Same name, different people, but it's worth clarifying that. So the worthy question is, why do each of the biographies of Jesus' life start with this character, John? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and here, John, introduced John the Baptist. Well, his significance lies in that he is the one sent by God to be the first person on the arena of human history who announces the coming of God's Son, Jesus Christ. So John has this intriguing, fascinatingly critical role in somehow being a link in the chain that bridges the Word in eternity and the Jesus in Bethany. That is John's role. It seems that John has gained some kind of reputation because through the social networks of his day, news reaches as far as Jerusalem and they decide to send a little subcommittee to Jesus, or to John, sorry, to find out what he is, who he's, who he's uh, doing, what he's doing. And look at verse 19. They say, John, who are you? And John's answer at first is quite bizarre. He says in verse 20, I am not the Christ. Now, a little lesson in social etiquette. This is not a helpful way to introduce yourself to someone. If, if I ask you after the service, or I say, hi, my name is Andy, who are you? It, it will help me nothing at all to say, hi, I am not Brad Pitt. <laughs> it's just not helpful. So why does John use this strong negative? And it is strong. He did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Christ. Why does he do this? Well, it is with unparalleled humility that John is at pains not to attract the gaze of men, but to point others to Jesus. He doesn't want to gain a name for himself, but he wants others to name Jesus as the Christ. See, he has great significance in his role, and he doesn't shy away from that. He adds authority to it by saying, you know that voice in Isaiah chapter 40 in the Old Testament prophet? I am the voice, he says. But with this authority, with this significance, he knows his place. Yes, I am the voice from Isaiah, but I am not the word from eternity. You see, you can't look at a voice. Every morning, I have this dilemma. That I, part of my morning routine, I sit down, have my breakfast, and for about 15 minutes, listen to the radio. And all you've got is voices. Have you ever thought, where do you look when you're listening to the radio? There's no window in my kitchen. I've seen it before. There's not much to look at. Where, where do you look when you've got all these voices? John is only a voice. And he says, yeah, listen to me, but let me provide you with something to look at. Listen to me as I point your gaze to Jesus. He is the Christ, not me. And he hammers this home again. So far he has said, negatively, I am not the Christ. Positively, I am a voice. And now he says, verse 27, I am not worthy to even untie his sandals. Why would you look at me, John says? Why on earth would you fill your gaze with me? You should be looking at Jesus. I am less than a slave compared to him. 
It is stunningly humble, self-effacing, self-forgetting is John the Baptist. How different is that to the way we tend to operate? We're always just out to make a name for ourselves, from what we wear, to how we speak, to the car we drive, to the job we have, to what we write on Facebook. It's all about making my name, protecting my name. Look at me, we say. I want to be center of attention. I noticed this week, listening to the radio, the people who uh, do the travel on the radio, even they want uh, you to remember their name. Have you noticed this? bizarre. So you get a travel report. We have a jackknife lorry on the M1 and it is causing tailbacks from junction 27 to 32. That's the Five Live News from me, Corey Allen. Why do I need to know your name? Who's car- I just need to know why I'm stuck in a, a roadblock. Who's Corey? I don't have anything against Corey Allen, but you see, the world wants us to remember their names. Here, John just says, do you know what? I would be happy to be forgotten so long as people see Jesus. The tragedy for John is that these people who are coming to see him, investigate him, there is one who stands among them. Jesus has come, and yet they don't know him. They don't see him. Now, as an aside, can I ask Charlotte Chapel members to pray for us who are preachers because it is a great temptation in this task in gospel ministry to want to play for your applause to want to make a name for ourselves as a great preacher you you'll have heard the phrase but it is it is true the sign of a great sermon is not that you come away saying isn't he a great preacher but that isn't don't we have a great savior And please pray for us that we would be self-forgetting. That we would never point you to ourselves, but we would also always point you to Jesus. Happy to be forgotten that Jesus might be remembered. I don't know if that's your battle. Do you love to be on the lips of other people? Do you want young guys to have your name on the back of their shirt, chanting your name? Do you want your name in the business title? Do you want a hospital wing named after you? I don't know if these are your, your longings, your desires, but you see, the example of John the Baptist is actually liberatingly attractive in a culture that is competitive for reputation. I've got more Facebook friends than you. Who cares? Happy to be forgotten so long as people through me see Jesus amazing example well day two verse 29 the day draws to a close the sun sets it rises and in verse 29 john the baptist is still center stage he's the only one that speaks on this day but this time it is not a response to fierce questioning but it it's almost a raw instinctive impulse when he is confronted with the person of jesus Maybe you can imagine the scene. John is relaxing in the shade of a tree with a bunch of his friends. They're chatting, putting the world to right. And as one of them speaks, he suddenly interrupts and says, Oh, stop. Look. Look. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As John is confronted with Jesus entering the picture, he just says, Look. 
Look at him. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's explore that. This idea of a lamb is big in the Old Testament in your Bible. It's used in about 96 passages, and in about 85 of them, it is always in the context of sacrifice. Now you see, in John's exclamation that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it is implied that one, the world is in sin, and two, the need of the world is for that sin to be taken away. And in the Old Testament, it is, it is the great kindness of God that he might provide a lamb, a sacrifice, that the lamb might die, bear the sin of the people, that they might live. The lamb died that God's people might live. You'll know some of the stories. Do you remember the Passover? That tragic night in Egypt. Egypt, that nation that deserved God's wrath, whose leader was, had a hard heart towards God and so deserved his punishments. And so God said, I will, I will send my angel of death and it shall pass through Egypt and it shall slay every firstborn son. But for my people in Egypt, I will provide a lamb. And if they slay that lamb, and on, its, on, the, on the door of their house paint with its blood, then when that angel of death passes through Egypt, he shall pass over that house. And so on that dreadful night, as the angel of death passes through Egypt, and there is death in most households, the people of God's, in their houses, there is no crying there. There is no dying there because they are protected through the blood of the lamb. You see, a lamb dies that the people might live. And so after that, in the temple, God establishes a continual pattern. It was the daily uh, pattern in the temple that morning and evening, a lamb might be killed. So that through the death of a lamb, the people might live. Now as we progress through scripture, we get to the prophet Isaiah. Now Isaiah takes this idea of a lamb and he just turns it slightly. And he starts to speak of a man, a servant, who was like a lamb. Listen to his words. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. This man, this lamb-like man, was slain, slaughtered, 
crushed, punished, sacrificed in the place of others. He died so that others might have life. There is life in the death of this lamb-like man. And this culminates and climaxes when we get to John's statements. It's been building through the Old Testament when suddenly he sees Jesus and he shouts, Look! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just a lamb, not any lamb, but the lamb. Not just like a lamb, but God's lamb. So here, right at the start of the gospel, John actually gives away the ending of the story. Don't you hate it when someone does that? But he almost, he takes this lamb and he transfers us forward to the abattoir at the end of the gospel. The place where this lamb-like man will be slaughtered upon a cross. This lamb-like man who will be suffering the agonies of crucifixion. This lamb-like man who will suffer beyond that the agonies of bearing God's wrath for sin. On him will be laid the sin of the world. My sin. And it will be taken away. And you know, sin like anything else cannot be in two places at one time. That means if it is laid on him, If it is taken away by him, it can no longer be on me. It is taken by him and it now ceases to be in existence. So that there is life for me through the death of this lamb. And so John says to all the world, without distinction, all the world in sin, look, look. The Lamb of God. There is life in a look at this Lamb. Now maybe you may take offense at being included in this bracket, the world of sin. Maybe it angers you. I think I can find it very easy to try and deceive myself out of my own guilt. It's actually even easier to deceive others, to deceive you of to my guiltiness. But in this passage, Jesus is described as the one who has a supernatural knowledge of men. Now, he meets someone called Simon, and he knows his future. He meets someone called Nathaniel, and he has seen his past. All your life history, your darkest moments, they're like an open book to this Jesus. He sees you through and through, and He cannot be deceived. And though you are one of the world's sinners, although you, like me, deserve nothing but the wrath of God, with no future ahead but death, God himself provides a lamb, his lamb. Jesus, the lamb of God, to come and to take away your sin and to give you eternal life. Now step back and see the bigness of this on this day in John 1. On this day, Jesus is described as the one who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. 
On this day, he is described as the Son of God, the one who is equal and has a, a loving relationship with the Father. Jesus here is shown to be the one who, before the creation of the world, in eternity, enjoyed the loving, joyful relationship of the Trinity. And here we see him as a lamb slaughtered on a tree to give you life. Look at this lamb. Why would you look at anything else? Do you know, nothing else deserves your gaze because there is life eternal life in a look at this lamb I would love to pause here but unfortunately John keeps up the pace of the narrative so day three the sun sets and begins to set in some ways on John the Baptist ministry and continues to rise on this person of Jesus and he's eager now to show us what does this lamb, what effect does this lamb have on individuals? So we read verse 35, and at first it seems like a bit of a Groundhog Day moment. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the lamb of God. It's almost as if he's saying, hey, you've, you've you've lost me for a second. Come back in the room. Look, the lamb of God. There is life in a look at this lamb. And we're now in a piece actually of literary genius by the writer, introduced to two of John's disciples. Now, I think he does this for two reasons. One is to engage you in the narrative. Do you see, one of them is named as Andrew, and the other is unnamed. It's just a shadowy silhouette of a figure. There's lots of discussion as to who this might be. Maybe it's the writer of the gospel. I wonder if it's to engage you in the narrative. Here is an opportunity to place yourself in this conversation, to fill the silhouette so that you hear the conversation firsthand. But I think the other reason these two people are introduced is to give us an example. What does it mean to look at this lamb? What does it mean to find life in the death of this lamb? Well, these two disciples, they start to follow Jesus. And they start having a conversation with him, which at first glance bears all the marks of that awkward first conversation. You know that? You've been there. Uh, You never quite know what to say. It's maybe trivial nicety. So uh, what do you want? Uh, Where are you staying? Come and see. But when you delve into these words, they actually have a whole load of meaning. They are packed See, when Jesus says, what do you want? The word want is actually seek. What do you seek? That word has big meaning in John's gospel. It's going to come up time and time again. And actually, it divides people. Half the people in the gospel will seek Jesus. They are wondering who he is, where he is. The other half, well, they seek to arrest Jesus. And eventually, they will seek to kill Jesus. When he says, what do you seek? He's cutting right to their hearts. The disciples respond, where are you staying? Now that word stay has a ton of meaning as well. It's the word remain. Now that is going to come up time and time again in the gospel. And it's the word that's used for the intimate relationship that Jesus will have with his disciples. So here they say, Jesus, where are you remaining? Where can we have this intimate relationship with you? And then they hear these glorious words of open invitation. Come, 
Come and you will see. And verse 39 blows my mind. It's got to be amazing. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. They met the Jesus of eternity at 4 o'clock on the third day of the week. And they chilled out with him at his place for the rest of the day. Isn't that great? (laughs) That's the picture actually in John's gospel of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You stay with him. You remain with him in his house as it were. So not only has Jesus come and dwelt among us, John 1.14, but here's a picture of discipleship. You stay with Jesus under his roof. Then later in the gospel, you'll be a sheep in his sheepfold. Later in the gospel, you'll be a, a branch on his vine. You're going to hear that heaven is a place where he prepares a room so that you can be with him. Isn't that a great picture of discipleship? The other gospels tend to speak of it as a journey. You follow him. But here Jesus says, if you find me, if you know who I am, just stay. You are with me. And so they, uh, they meet this Jesus. And so through these disciples, actually the, the writer engages you and says, okay, let me give you this invitation. He slaps this invitation on your desk and he says to you, well, how have you responded to these words of Jesus? Come and you will see. I wonder, have you looked to this lamb? Have you come to this lamb as the one who has taken away the sin of the world? Who has taken away your sin? And are you staying, remaining in him? It's the picture, just like the Israelites in Egypt. They were in the house covered by the blood of the lamb. Well, To be a disciple of Jesus is to be one who has come and who stays sheltered under his roof, protected on our doorways by his blood. He dies that we might have life. Plenty in this gospel will reject him. In fact, the first 12 chapters are just full of people who want him dead. They are not promised life. The question is, have you looked Have you come to remain with Jesus? Now the days keep going and we're almost out of time, but let me just show you two more things that strike us in this passage. The first one is a challenge to Christians. Do you see how this little band of disciples who stay with Jesus expands? Andrew goes in such excitement and finds his brother Simon and says, I have found the Christ. And then uh, Philip goes and finds Nathaniel and says, Hey, come and see. I found this Jesus, the one the Old Testament spoke about. Here is the simplest, the most tried and tested evangelistic technique. It's a friend to a friend, a brother to a brother who just says, I found a Savior. Come and see. It's a really personal thing. I've found a Savior. Come and see. It's how the world works. We could go around and ask us, how did you get the job that you're currently in? Chances are most of us got this job through knowing someone. Uh, You know a friend of a friend and they get you the job. That's how I got this job. Uh, Think about how how you got the cold that you're currently battling with. Well, you knew someone and they sneezed all over you and you got the cold. Think about how you became a Christian. A friend, a brother said, do you know what, I found a savior. Come and see. 
I wonder who you could, in the excitement of knowing Jesus as the one who's taken our sins away, go and say, do you know what? I've found a Savior. Come and see him. In fact, rephrase that. I wonder who you need to say that to. Because it is a sign of true friendship that we will point our friend's eyes to this lamb who just takes away the sin of the world. We come to a close. The rest of days three and four actually serve to reinforce, reinforce John's purpose of belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. See, Andrew comes to this conclusion. You are the Christ, he says in verse 41. Nathaniel comes to the conclusion, you are the Son of God. See, John's purpose has in some ways already been achieved for these people. They have believed that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and so they have life remaining in Jesus. We have seen enough tonight of this Lamb to know that there is life in a look at him. For some of you, it may take the next 20 chapters of the gospel. Maybe like Nathaniel, you're a bit of a skeptic. Well, come and see. See the works of Christ that you might believe in him and have this life. But for others, you've seen enough. You've seen that, do you know what? I am a sinner and I need my sin to be taken away. Some of you have been coming for quite a while and you're still trying to wrestle, put all these pieces of the puzzle together. Maybe it's some of the younger people. You've been coming for years and years and years and you've seen glimpses of this Jesus, but you're still, well, see what the world's got to offer. Do you know what? The message of John is procrastinate no longer. Dither no longer. Make excuses no longer. Look, the Lamb of God's who takes away the sin of the world. Look, now. We started off with a contemporary illustration from Lost. Let me take you back to a 19th century preacher called Spurgeon. And to people like you, he says this. You remind me of one who is shipwrecked and who, as the lifeboat comes up to the sinking ship, says to the captain, before I can get on board the lifeboat, I want to know the exact number of planks that are in it. And I do not think that knowing that would content me. I should also like to know how many rivets and how many bolts are in the boats. And I want also to know what is the theory of the operation of the oars upon the waves. And I want also to know how is it that boats are propelled. If a man, if a man did ever talk thus, I'm pretty sure the captain of the light boat would exclaim, what a fool that man is. He is in danger of drowning. And yet he talks like this. Come into the boat at once or you shall perish. There is something simple for you to do. And the text bids you to do it. It is this. Behold the Lamb of God. I pray that if you have seen this Lamb tonight, you would dither no longer. But that you would get into the lifeboats, that you would come and remain in Christ and in, in him finds life. Let's pray together.